This podcast is made possible by Sound Toys, makers of the award-winning Echo Boy and a full line of professional audio effects plugins. Twist, morph, drive, and push your creativity to brave new worlds with the analog attitude of Sound Toys. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Bot Podcast. With his early years in Roxy Music, Artie's solo albums in the 70s, the creation and conceptualization of ambient music, groundbreaking collaborations with David Bowie, and as a producer of albums for Devo, Talking Heads, U2, James, and Coldplay, Brian Eno should need no introduction. In the fall of 2011, on a sunny day in London, John Bacigalupi and I found ourselves walking down a dead-end street leading to Eno's workshop near the famed Portobello Road. We waited patiently while paintbrushes were cleaned, cats discussed, and tea made. Then we sat down for an hour, and we got to talk to Brian Eno. I, w- I just finished reading uh, on some Faraway Beach, the book that was written about you, and I was just as just a total offhand question. Did do you ever read a book like that, or do you read things read written? It. Yeah, I I picked it up in a bookshop and read four pages standing up, <laughs> and there were four mistakes in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I um, can see how that. And they happen. they weren't very important mistakes, you know. Mm-hmm. They didn't make any difference to anything, but I just thought oh, I'm just going to get annoyed if I read this. Sessions I've worked on have shown up in books, and and you read it, and you're like. Nope, you know, yeah. that's not what happened. Well, it's a, it's a sort of rule of life that anything you've ever been involved in will not be reported accurately. <laughs> so, so a very good way of understanding how to deal with newspapers and media information in general is to just look at a report of something that you know about, mm-hmm. and you'll find that there are quite a lot of mistakes in it. Sometimes they're minor, yeah. but sometimes they're quite major in that they're, they're really a completely different perspective on the event. So they... They may be factually accurate, right. but they give a quite different feeling of what was going on. Exactly. And um, I th- if you imagine that that's probably true of every other article in the newspaper as well, <laughs> that somebody who knew about it would read it and say exactly the same thing. It's right. just not, not what happened. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so so we're here to make sure we propagate more mistakes and lies with tape <laughs> Well, interviews, <laughs> interviews are different because... Yeah. Um, even though there was in the 70s a way of perverting those when what interviewers would do would ask you a question and um, then they would print your answer but they would rewrite their question. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's a very subtle way of changing things because you you can, if you do that correctly or cleverly as they did, they can make you look like a complete idiot Right. <laughs> so your words are exactly the same, so you can't accuse them of misquoting it. Right. Because they fall in a different context, because the, the question is different, yeah. um, it makes an entirely different impression. Yeah, that didn't last for very long, but there was a little period of <laughs> music journalists doing that. Way back in time, um, one of the things I read about in that book was that you were collecting tape decks, like... Um, or way way pre Roxy Music and yes. later in, I guess college and such, 
And what was the urge to get these devices that could capture mm. and manipulate audio? You know, what, what spurred well, you on? The first of all, the tape recorder was really the first musical tool that I could handle. <laughs> I couldn't ever play any instruments. Yeah. Um, and I think I still can't, really, in the strict <laughs> sense of that word. Um, but I remember when I was quite young, hearing about tape recorders and thinking how incredible it was that you could capture a sound. Mm-hmm. That just seemed to me such an amazing idea at the time. And, yeah. and I remember bothering my parents for, <laughs> for years, saying that was what I wanted for Christmas. But they were, they were expensive tape recorders then clunky too they, in England we had these tape recorders called ferrographs mm-hmm. ferrous means iron of course and they were blocks solid blocks of iron <laughs> I subsequently had one but they were so heavy um, yeah. and I always wanted to get my hands on one of these and when I went to art college the first art college I was at they, they had a tape recorder right? and I just took it over became my plaything. <laughs> um, and I started really exploring the plasticity of sound, the fact that as soon as sound is not just something in the air but is on tape, it's a plastic material. You know, right. it's, it's malleable like paint is. And because I was at an art school, so it all seemed <laughs> completely consistent somehow that the material I was working with instead of colour was sound. Um, so I, I remember the very first piece I made, actually, which is not very different from a lot of the pieces I still make now. <laughs> I haven't really progressed a lot. Um, we had a, a lampshade with a great big um, metal uh, shade on it, one of those sort of institutional enameled um, circular lampshade, and it had a very beautiful note, like a big bell. So I remember recording that, and the tape recorder we had had three speeds. So I just kind of multi-tracked it at different speeds. Oh, right. um, it was one of those ones where, like a Revox, where you can jump from one track to the next. Okay, so you, right. you put track one over to track two with the new addition. Right. Sound, 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 yeah, sound, sound on sound. Yeah, sound on sound. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the first piece I made really on a tape recorder was. Very similar to actually a lot of ambient music I've done since. It was this long, slow piece of these big gong sounds in right. three octaves. Right, I was going to say about the speeds of being yeah, octaves, right? That's right. So, I, yeah. so you know, the deepest sound was so awesome. Quarter speed, it was just wow, it's fantastic. I'd never <laughs> heard anything like it. Um, and and then I started to so I. I still didn't own a tape recorder at that time. Right. Um, then I saw somebody selling one in the newspaper for not very much money. Um, so I bought it. And it was in quite bad repair. Um, but that meant it could do something that no other instrument could do. Um, it was a bit wobbly, the spindle that yeah. drove the tape, which meant that everything went like that. Yeah. Wow, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Accidental manipulation. So, so I then started buying tape recorders. Did you find other ones that had other yeah, anomalies? Yeah. Yes, yeah. lots of interesting anomalies. Yeah. For instance, I used one as a, a tape echo mm-hmm. um, device, but it 
there must have been something wrong about the way the bias was set or something because it, it would immediately take it all to high frequencies. <laughs> um, again, you see, this is before... There weren't any other ways of doing those things. Right. There weren't processing tools. This was in the... Um, Sort of 1967, 68. So, right. um, not not many things like that existed. And anyway, I wasn't part of the pop world where there might have been things like that. You know, I hadn't yeah. joined a band like or anything. Reverbs like or, yeah. or yeah. such. You know, Had, were you were, at the time? Were you aware of, of like um, Stockhausen and, and yes, tape manipulation so, type? So stuff? that was the that was the area that I was coming from. Yeah. yeah. So I knew about that. Of course, I, I was enjoying pop music, but I didn't know anything really about the technology of it at that time. Right. Um, but I did know about experimental music, and um, my professor was a guy called Tom Phillips, who was a painter but had, had very close connections with the experimental music world. Yeah. So through him, I got to meet... Um, um, Morton Feldman, Christian Wolff. Mm-hmm. Um, then subsequently I met and worked with Cornelius Cardew, who was a very important composer here in right. England. And he started this thing called the Scratch Orchestra, which was a sort of experimental oh, right. commune of right. <laughs> mostly art students who started doing, I mean, really very interesting things yeah. musically. Um, very, very far ahead of their time in some respects. Um and in general, the English school of experimental composers, which included Cardew, um, uh, Michael Nyman was part of it, mm-hmm. Gavin Bryars, Christopher Hobbs, a whole group of people. Yeah. In general, they were anti-electronic. Right. So the electronic people were the Europeans. Yeah. Stockhausen, <laughs> Boulez, Earcam was just starting mm-hmm. to form then. Um, and there was this... There were actually three camps at that time. There were the Europeans who were all sort of very consciously um, carrying on the tradition of classical music. So they saw as their roots, you know, serialism and um, um, Schoenberg and Berg and Hindemith and all that kind of thing. And they saw logical steps into what they were doing. Then there were the Americans um, at that time that, there was Cage, of course, at the yeah. top of it, Feldman. But then Steve Reich, uh, Philip Glass, Certainly. Um, um, Terry Riley, who who didn't, who, who'd sort of just stepped out of that tradition completely. So they didn't see themselves really as the logical next step in the European classical tradition. They, they were really yeah. something different and looked much more interesting to me. And, but then there were the English. There was the English school as well, which was um, um, really different from either of those in the sense that it was very conceptual, very homemade, yeah. nothing to do with electronics. Like electronics was slightly a cheap trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I felt really at home between what was going on in America Mm-hmm. Um, with the California minimalists, as they were then called, and what was going on in England. Um, and so my idea became to try to consolidate those two things. Yeah. And then gradually I started realising that 
a lot of the things I was interested in in pop music, as it was called, such as the Velvet Underground and mm-hmm. various other things, weren't actually irreconcilable with <laughs> that. You know, I had thought that they were irreconcilable. Yeah. Right. But it seemed to me they were really completely different ways of thinking about music, and I couldn't, for a long time, see any way in which they could be brought together. Um, but then I did. Yeah. I mean, you, I know you had a few sort of bands or, or combinations of people playing during college years and stuff, mm-hmm. right? But there's always a, it's a, a gray area in my mind of how there was sort of a transition from the art world and then you end up in a, a band called Roxy Music. I mean, I know it was a bit of happenstance that you ended up in that group too. Yes. Well, I think there are two two things going on here. First, First of all is that by the late 60s, um, multi-track recording mm-hmm. was commonplace. It was still 8 or 16 track then. I think it was still 8 track. But a new idea had appeared, which is that music could be a lot like painting. Instead of it being something where you stood in front of a mic and performed, mm-hmm. so it was essentially all made in one moment, one time in one place, which was sort of what was happening with um still traditional recording at that time, but the the recording, even if it was tarted up a little bit by engineers and producers, yeah. it was essentially a record of a performance. Right. But by by the late 60s, there was there'd been the history of Phil Spector and so on, of course, George Martin and various people who yeah. were starting to realise that what you did in a studio was more like painting. It was painting with sound. Yeah. So you could make a piece over an extended period of time. The piece didn't have to pre-exist the process. <laughs> you could make it up as you, as you did it. Um, and you could make it like, a, like you would make a painting. You put something on, scrape something else off, yeah. uh, do all the things that you do in the plastic arts. So it stopped being something that was located at one moment in time. Yeah. And, it started being a process that you could engage in over months or even years, if you want to, where you keep coming back to a piece and changing it round and you cut and paste and do all those things. So, funnily enough, the people who who first realised this were art students. That, yeah. That's why I'm convinced there was such a uh, an influx of art students into music in the late 60s and 70s. It was because we were better equipped to understand how to use the medium than musicians were. Musicians, of course, were still, because that was where their talents were, were still thinking of performance. And music students in particular were just way behind the curve. They they didn't get it at all. And if you look at at the bands of the late 60s and 70s, you'll find lots of art students and no music students in them. Right, exactly. Almost without exception, the music students I mean, didn't get that idea that you would... Um, they're in jazz band. Yes, that's right, yes. <laughs> so I mean, uh, someone like Pete Townsend, who I know you admired early yeah. on, is a perfect example of that. Yeah, we studied under the same people, Pete right. and I. Right, So, So that was one thing, that there was this fact that the, the medium had changed. It was not like... It still inherited the name music, but it wasn't right. the same medium, basically, just like... Cinema isn't the same medium as theatre. So it invited in a whole lot of new talents, um, which happened to come from the visual arts, but really they came from outside music is the important thing. (laughs) 
Um, but the second thing was that also by the late 60s and early 70s, you have to remember this was the era of pop art in the fine arts. The probable godfather of pop art was an English painter called Richard Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, he, was, he was on it before Warhol or anybody else. He was really one of the major figures in the idea that one could use popular iconography and take it seriously. And Brian, who was in Roxy Music, the founder of Roxy mm-hmm. Music, indeed, um, had studied under Richard Hamilton at Newcastle School of Art. Right. And I had studied under Roy Ascot, who was Hamilton's sort of protege at Ipswich. So, so we both <laughs> came out of this background of a fine art world that had turned its attention to pop and said, right. ah, there's something interesting going on there. It's yeah. not the, the little brother that trickled down. <laughs> it's not the um, debased form of what fine artists are doing. Yeah. So, so we both had this idea that here was a new medium um, and that that was the medium that we wanted to be artists in. So, so I don't think we ever felt that we were sort of stepping down from the lofty <laughs> ideals of fine art just so we could pull some attractive chicks or something like that. <laughs> um, we, we felt that this was, both of us felt that this was where we were going to be artists. So it was quite um, self-conscious in, in that way, you know. Do you um, think, think a bit more like conceptualizing of what, of what Roxy Music would be was, was going on too, and as opposed to, say, for guys getting in a room and just bang out some songs like the Rolling Stones yeah. or somebody. No, it wasn't at all like that. Yeah, it was, it it was very... Like there's thoughts behind it. Yes, know? and we were very conscious of, first of all, where we could stand in, in the history of pop music, mm-hmm. which wasn't very old at that time. It was <laughs> 16 years old or something. Right. <laughs> um, the idea that we could use anything that had happened in that history as, as our palette. Right. Um, we we weren't at all embarrassed about sort of taking the stage style of Little Richard mm-hmm. and adding it to some completely different kind of music. And, and that was kind of what we thought we were doing, that it was sort mm-hmm. of a collage of yeah. pop music until that point. Um, and for, for all the sort of sincerists in the world of music, that's to say the people who think you shouldn't think about what you're doing, and there's always a lot of those in, in, in <laughs> art who, who distrust intellect and think that it right. necessarily dilutes and ruins <laughs> serious, passionate art. Well, they didn't like Roxy music. Right. Um, they, they saw it as much too intellectual, really. Right. <laughs> in fact, funnily enough, um, yesterday I received a doctorate from my old art school. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm now a doctor of letters, um, and the the person who read my oration had gone through some internal documents from the art school that I'd been at, <laughs> yeah. and he'd found one document from one member of staff to another that said, "Eno is hampered by intellectual considerations." <laughs> <laughs> And you still must be, right? <laughs> but it's interesting that there's always that problem in art. Right, right. Um, that they're, oh you think that you've got to keep it away from the brain. <laughs> yeah. 
I think we can go forever on that one. When was the first time you stepped into a commercial recording studio? Um, the, the first time. Um, in fact, I was performing in the Scratch Orchestra. We recorded um, some of Cornelius Cardew's piece called The Great Learning, which is this enormous, um, very ambitious piece written for non-musicians. Um, and there, there was one piece in The Great Learning called Paragraph 7. And that was a piece that I became very, very, very interested in, and I wrote quite a lot about it. So that was the first time in the studio for you? Yes, and the, but I wasn't involved at all in... Right. I didn't even go in the control room, actually. I, right. <laughs> there were about 70 of us doing that piece. <laughs> we just went into this great big studio and yeah. did it. Where was that at? Um, I think it was a studio called Chapel. Yeah. Do you know what? I can tell you because I just the other day, yeah. in a second hand shop, found the CD of that. No way. <laughs> wow. Um, I was very, very pleased to find it because I had the record for years. What were your impressions of that experience? Well, I didn't really pay much attention yeah. to the studio because I wasn't aware of it. We were just in a big room and. I think it was very simply recorded, you know, maybe just two mics or something. Right. <laughs> um, so the first time I went into a studio with some sort of intention of making something there was the first Roxy Music album. We, right. we went into um, a studio called Command Studios in Piccadilly. Mm -hmm. It was in a great part of London, um, being right in the centre of London. And I used to love the lunchtimes. <laughs> going out for a walk yeah. and Brian and I used to at that point smoke Sullivan Powell Turkish cigarettes <laughs> which you could get in Burlington Arcade um, so so we worked there I mean records were made so much more quickly then and I, I sort of already had some idea about not only how studios worked what I thought was possible in them that hadn't been done before and we did a little bit of that on that record. Does some of that have to do with like processing things through the synthesizer? And I, we're talking such a long time ago that to, <laughs> to sustain my interest yeah. in thinking about it is already proving challenging. <laughs> I'm really not that interested in that era of yeah. It was so it was primitive and yeah yeah, and it was 44 years ago or something. That's true. <laughs> But one of the things that comes up is, is people throw your name around as Eno-esque and, uh, and such like it's that. It's quite nice being an adjective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you find that kind of, uh, kind of interesting when you see it pop up? Well, it's a little bit like we were saying earlier, because I, I sometimes think, no, it isn't Eno-esque at all. <laughs> at least not the Eno I know, anyway. Um, but it's the same when, when ambient became a, mm. a word. You know, it, I had been using it since the late 70s but it wasn't really until I guess the early 90s that it or possibly a bit later that it became a word that people started using and then yeah um, then there would be these sort of systems in in racks in record shops called ambient mm -hmm. and I'd look through them and I think no it's not no, no, no. Oh, that one might be. Uh... <laughs> so it very quickly morphed into something different from what I thought it was. 
which yeah. is fine, you know, you can, one doesn't really right. concepts like this. I mean, you, you come up with stuff later in the 90s where it's it's got a, a defined beat, which always kind of baffled me coming from your view of ambient. Yeah. That things are kind of more in a floating state. Yeah. And then you said, this is ambient music. Boom, 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 <laughs> boom. Really? <laughs> yeah, it meant slightly quieter kick drum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, it confused the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, John and I work as producers and mm-hmm. at times for me it's a financial necessity to, to work in the studio to to keep my studio alive to keep yeah. my career alive I imagine you don't have to worry too much about your finances mm-hmm. on that end but what what are the criteria that make you take on a project like a U2 album or a Coldplay album or or such these days I suppose it's really well the, actually there there's quite a few of them that mesh together mm-hmm. um but the the dominant one is, am I likely to go somewhere with this that that I haven't been before, yeah. or am I likely to be able to take the little bundle of ideas that I nurture mm. <laughs> and plant them like seeds into some other soil yeah. and see them flourish in new ways? Right. Now, flourish means two things. It means either. Uh, have babies with other ideas that's a kind of flourishing <laughs> or become worldwide successful ideas that's a kind of yeah. flourishing as well yeah so so one of them is a flourishing in in quality and the other in quantity sort of thing i yeah. i i'm quite happy if ideas you know as you know i've done a lot of things that are very obscure as well as true. a lot of things that are very well known and the obscure things are just as important to me because i like planting some of those things and watching how they diffuse through the culture and what what they become over time right. and then picking them up again and it's, it's like having a little incubator you know, you say, <laughs> okay put the idea there see what happens to it and i'll take it back later and work on it some more right so it's like you let those things be it's like nursery you know you let somebody else grow them for a little yeah. while <laughs> other people grow them and then you yeah. readopt them when, yeah when they've gone somewhere that you probably wouldn't have taken them yourself, actually. So that's the interesting thing about Ambient, for example. That's a very good example of that, that suddenly that idea mated with a lot of quite unlikely partners. (laughs) I wouldn't have imagined it. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, the Ambient that you were just talking about is sort of the marriage of ambient my ambient my kind of ambient and techno really right and i would never have thought of that right but i'm glad somebody did because the the progeny of that combination has produced a lot of i think really interesting new music that's become right. part of the vocabulary now of things that you can do you know right true um so that's that's one way of watching your ideas take root where they get married with lots of other ideas and, mm-hmm. but another way is putting them with a very big band and seeing them suddenly everywhere right <laughs> and that's that's quite thrilling too do you feel like you've seen that with something like talking heads or youtube yeah or, or what have you yes yeah, so i you know i don't want to give the impression that i'm a sort of svengali character where these <laughs> poor unsuspecting bands become the sort of Hosts for my parasitic ideas. <laughs> it's not. It's not like that yeah, at all. Yeah. Those those bands choose to work with me because they they like to work with someone who encourages the new things they want to do yeah. rather than the things they have done. You have to remember that most producers 
and most record companies are thrilled by repetition. <laughs> You've done one thing that they kind of thought was good or it became a hit or whatever. Oh, absolutely. And they really would love you to carry on doing exactly that for the rest of your fucking yeah. life. Oh, yeah. You know. Until I stop selling. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I find with, with most bands, they're so thrilled when, when somebody comes along and says, wow, I've never heard that idea before. Right. Let's work on that. And I think, really? You mean... You don't want another of those types of songs? No, I don't. You'll do that in your sleep. What's this, you know? Right. Because most people don't realize that new ideas are clumsy. Mm -hmm. They're clumsy and awkward and covered in blood, and they need, you know, they need a little while to grow, and they need a, they need to be protected while they're growing. And I think um, if if you're prepared to go through that process with someone they're mm. very very grateful they people really need that kind of help um, they need somebody to sit there and be not necessarily be enthusiastic but be engaged for a while right. and I think what I give people as a producer is um, I'm very very highly opinionated when I was at art college I found that the most important tutors to me were not necessarily the ones I agreed with but the ones who had strong opinions the, the most useless tutors even if I really liked them as people or I liked their work were the ones who said oh that's alright yeah it's quite nice that doesn't help you at all no <laughs> what helps you is somebody saying Jesus that's amazing come on you've got to get that finished that's really something no, yeah. no, don't fuck about with all that shit. Get that done. You know, this, this yeah. kind of intensity makes you think, fucking hell, I better do something. <laughs> right. Oh, um, yeah. Or, on the other hand, the, the person who comes in and says, why don't you just give up? That is really hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> really, just start again and somewhere else, not there. Yeah. Um, that helps too, actually, because yeah. if you believe in it, you're then forced to say, no, I'm not. I believe in this and I'm going to prove it to you. Yeah. Any strong position helps you. Um, and a strong position takes, to maintain it, takes stamina and um, some sort of engagement, you know. Right. And, and I've seen a lot of producers at work and I think you're not paying attention. <laughs> You know, they've got their phones and they've nowadays they've got their <laughs> bloody iPads. and Yeah. I think, you're not here. What, what are you doing? Leave the studio. Get right. out of here. <laughs> what kind of restrictions do you place, at least on yourself, when you're working on an album and producing in that role, um, as far as communication? Well, it's something you have to continually remind yourself of because yeah. it's very easy to, to forget. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy to forget that your best work is done when your attention is fully engaged. Yeah. You know, when you're in a kind of semi-obsessive state with something. Um, you're just so, either so into it because you love it or so annoyed by it that you've got to fix it or, yeah. or something that you're engaged, you know. And these things like this are little <laughs> safety valves. They take the pressure off. Right. And you don't want the pressure to be taken off, really. You, you don't want to sort of calm down and chill out a little bit. You you want to stay 
at full temperature until right. you've got it done, you know. So restrictions from my point of view, well, current, I don't have a television. I never have had, well, at least for nearly 30 years, mm. because I know I'm an addict. <laughs> because English TV is much better than American TV, which means that you can get addicted to it much right. more easily. I don't have internet at home, um, at my flat. Right. Uh, because when I go back there, I would rather read, for example, or have a conversation or something. <laughs> I, I don't really want to be... I have internet here, you see, so I can sure. do that during the day. But I'm, I'm finding that I'm grazing much less than I used to. Like wandering around the internet looking at things or... yeah. Yeah, it's it's lazy, really. It's sort of like being in the doctor's waiting room. There's a bunch of magazines. And you just... <laughs> in the studio, do you find yourself putting the phone, turning the phone off, setting it aside, or yes, certain things? Yes. Um, now, one interesting thing that's happened, I think, is that I notice that in conversations in studios now. Because it's easy to do, one is much more inclined to refer to other pieces of music and listen to them. And that is actually very interesting. That's something mm -hmm. never dreamed of doing until 15 years ago. You never would play somebody else's record in the studio. Right. But now, quite often, we'll be talking about um, something or other and say, oh, yeah, do you remember that song by The Essex? Easier said than done. There's that. Yeah. Okay. Let's check it out. So, yeah. so I think partly because of the existence of you know iTunes and Spotify and so on, mm -hmm. one's much more likely to to do in a literal way what we, as I was saying earlier on, Roxy Music was kind of regarding the history of pop music as its palette. Mm -hmm. But we did that sort of in our heads. <laughs> yeah. We didn't actually ever listen to things and say. Ooh, see that bass, that, that idea on the bass there, let's try that out. We never did that. Right. But we do that a lot now, of saying, Yeah. Why don't we just collage that idea? Don't don't let's make a pretense of it. Don't let's <laughs> do our own version and disguise it. We'll just take that idea and see what that's like. When here have an instant actual reference. Yeah. Sort of like yeah. Picasso did at various times where he would make direct quotes from classical paintings right. and didn't ever disguise the fact that he was doing so. <laughs> well, he often did disguise it as well. He, 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 was, he was too kind of thief. I had a question, like, when you're talking about the, the ideas as, as seeds, what about with something like Bloom? How did, how did you see that going out into the world? Well, that came out of a long, long, long process, that... Well, actually, the idea is really as old as any musical idea that I have. Um, I described how in, in my first actually realised piece of music was that thing I did with tape recorders. Now, that was really a generative music piece because all I did to make that piece was I recorded myself bonging this thing every few seconds on one, at one speed, and I did it again every few seconds but a different kind of number so maybe uh, you know 11 and a half seconds interval in the first one and 15 and a quarter on the second and so on so that when when these three tracks overlaid 
the bongs fell out of sequence to each other, so it was a constantly changing piece. As you can see, it's absolutely no different from the kind of thing I'm doing now. <laughs> so what I was interested in was the idea that the act of composition was not the precise specification of a musical piece, but really the invention of a sort of system for making a piece of music make itself. You know, I couldn't predict what that piece was going to sound like. I didn't have an image of it in my mind, as people always imagine that classical composers do walk around with whole symphonies in their mind. It wasn't like that. It was more, um, here's a sort of a machine, really, for I mean, a conceptual machine for producing a stream of music. And that idea stuck with me. Steve Reich's piece, early tape pieces mm-hmm. were absolutely galvanised me. They mm-hmm. were the most important things that happened to me in many ways because I thought everything I had been kind of vaguely thinking about composing music and how it, ha- how it would happen, how it came together, was completely realised in those pieces. Um, so from then on, from when I heard those Reich pieces onwards, <clears throat> I was starting to think of what I subsequently called generative music, which now, by the way, has about four and a half million web pages, <laughs> <laughs> and and I think is a more important idea than ambient music. But mm-hmm. it'll wait. You wait in <laughs> years' time. That'll be there'll be a rack, the generative music rack. <laughs> yeah. Um, but well, but my idea was that I want to compose by constructing systems that made music for me. And so all the early ambient records were sort of examples of that. But of course, they, they were not infinite systems because you, they were records. Mm-hmm. You know, so basically, you were hearing the same piece over and over again. But the piece was actually a product of a process that could have generated endlessly. Yeah. Um, it just happened that the only way of presenting anything was by taking a little section of that endless stream and saying, here it is. Well, throughout the 80s and the 90s, I was trying to think of systems, of ways of doing that for real so that I didn't have to just present an example, a little section of it, but I could present the system. And my first my first solution, well, you see these things hanging here. Yeah. Yeah, so they... They exist to hang those little CD players. I've got about 50 of them at the corner of the room there. <laughs> and I used to hang those up in installations that I did, and I'd have a CD in each one. And the CDs were all on random shuffle. <laughs> and, of course, I, I carefully worked. It wasn't random what was on them. It was stuff that could fit together in different ways. So I would have a permanently self-making piece of music, which never really repeated. Again wasn't really a domestically suitable idea. Not that many people are going to do that. Um, no. <laughs> so then I... The next step was to do it with um, early software programs, computers. Um, and that proved much more successful. But again, it was still clumsy and awkward to expect people to install this thing in their computer somehow get the sound out into a decent hi-fi system instead right. of speakers that big 
Um, and it wasn't until the iPod came along, iPhone, sorry, yeah. iPhone, what we wrote the right. first one for, that I thought, okay, this is it. Now everybody has a computer in their pocket, potentially. <laughs> so at last yeah. this thing can exist in, in the way I've always thought it would. By the way, of course, the, the important character in this is Peter Childers, who I made it Absolutely. with. Peter had been working... We'd, we'd been in touch over the years, but he'd been very much working on the idea of generative music for games. He used to be a, a game music composer. Oh, right. um, and he had, like me, had been sick of the idea that this would just be loops, repetitive loops. <laughs> We realised that as soon as the iPhone came along, that this was the answer to our prayers, because <laughs> suddenly you could imagine that people would carry around this thing. Yeah. So what I what I think of Bloom as is not. I don't think of it as a tool. I think of it as a piece of music, which comes out in different forms all the time. You know, your your version of it when you listen to it is going to be different from his, <laughs> different from mine. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's a new idea for a piece of music, a piece of music that exists in thousands of different states that isn't recallable because you can never really get exactly the same thing to happen twice. Right. So it's sort of like a, the essence of a piece that exists and occasionally is realised for a little while in some audible, tangible form, <laughs> but is always around in, right. in various in all its possible unrealized states, you know. It's somewhere between an instrument and an album. Yes. Okay. And How do you feel about, yeah. like, it's showing up on other people's records now, which it's done? Well, I hope it does. Has it done? <laughs> yeah, well, I, the, he the did. CD that we sent you, we used it on. Did you? It's yeah. on the ra new Radiohead, as far as I can tell. Is it? Well, there's a track called Bloom, and as far as I can tell, it <laughs> opens with, with Bloom. I didn't even it catch sounds, that. Yeah, that first track. Is oh, really? Kind of Piano oh, in the background, and, oh, and salvaged a bridge for that C of B's record that you know I'm working with Martin on. Well, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I really like the thought that you know I was talking earlier about one's ideas getting married with right. other ideas. I I just think it's wonderful. It's like having children, and you know one of them goes off and marries an African, and suddenly you've got. These amazing-looking <laughs> grandchildren. Wow, where did that come from? <laughs> I remember, I was kind of like, wow, is it legal for us to use this? I'm like, I have a feeling he'd be okay. I think it is legal, just, anyway. Oh, yeah, we, you know, it's, it's kind of an instrument. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think I think we sort of, we, we sort of anticipated it, and, you know, we explicitly made the decision not to, not to do anything to prevent it happening. We, right. I, I personally am thrilled when when that happens. <laughs> what if somebody recorded, you know, 60 minutes of it and put a CD, you know, Larry Crane presents Brian Eno and Peter Chilvers Bloom? <laughs> <laughs> I would think that was so funny. I would think... i got a job to do when I get home. <laughs> I would think, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of Brian Eno presents Brian Eno and Peter Chilvers Bloom? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> this is the specific instance I heard mm. as I was falling asleep on this day. Yes, yeah. <laughs> when you're in the studio working on your own music or working as a producer um, what role does chance play and, 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 and sort of things like that that are somewhat related to this well I think this is related to that attention issue that I was talking mm -hmm. about earlier um, you know 
Pasteur said this thing. Pasteur, um, I think he said, chance favours the prepared observer. And my version of that, before I'd ever heard that, <laughs> because people would often say to me, oh, you're so lucky. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, things have worked out well for me. And I thought, well, I don't know, luck is being ready in some ways. Because, you know, the fact that I joined Roxy Music in the first place, which was sort of the way I got into being a professional musician, well, you could say it was luck because I just happened to bump into this guy who joined this little band. But it wasn't luck. It was partly because I had deliberately not got a job I didn't want a fucking boring job <laughs> because I wanted to be ready and open for when something came up and this thing came up it didn't look like it was going to be much at the time it was a little <laughs> thing you know and I thought okay that's certainly more interesting than anything I've got going on right now yeah so so I was ready for it and I had kept myself ready for it um and similarly I think um working in the studio you have to really be ready to step out of where you thought you were going. That you know, The problem of over-determination, of thinking, I know exactly where I'm going, and I don't want any of these interferences, that's a, that's a serious issue, actually. You have yeah. to really think about that. And I'll give you an example of um, a bit of randomness that happened quite recently. On this record, mm -hmm. um, there's a song called Glitch, and that was something that I started a long, long time ago, and I'd lost the multi-track version of it, as it were. It was in a distant computer. I don't even right. know which one. And I probably couldn't ever play it again I, if I wanted to. But anyway, I had a good mix of where it got to at that point. And I thought, well, I can just work on top of that mix. I'm happy with the mix. So, I, I started listening to it, and there was one bit that had a really, really bad digital distortion part. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't at all flattering, <laughs> and it, I thought, what can I do with that? It happened at a very important part in the lyrics of the poem. I couldn't just chop it out. So I thought, okay, I've got to... I'm going to regard this as an opportunity, <laughs> not as a crisis. I've got to make something happen here that accommodates this incredibly difficult moment. Yeah. So I, I just built a whole new little section for that part of the song, which enabled me to take everything out and put this new section in. Now, that was such a departure in the music. I thought, oh, dear, that really, it, it works, but it's so off the scale of where the song has been to. So I thought, that, so I have to now accept that the song has gone somewhere else and start working on top of that. And in fact, it opened up a whole new way of thinking about that piece. And the piece benefited hugely from that problem. Yeah. Now, if I'd been a little bit richer or more anal, I could have probably got someone to solve the problem technically, you know. Some <laughs> poor sod who comes, sits here for three or four days and goes through it digitally rewriting the, all the waveforms and so on. Right, right. That wouldn't have been an interesting solution right. to me. The interesting solution to say was, 
for me was to say, let's turn this crisis into an opportunity, um, and let's let's make it, let's let it make me go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and that that's generally what I try to do. So, you know, similarly with working with bands, if something goes wrong, so called, I try to think, okay, where does that, where can that take us? Let's not right. think, oh my God, everything's gone wrong. We've wasted a whole day. Let's think, no, we haven't wasted a day. We've only wasted a day if we don't make use of what what's right. happened as a result. If right. we if we use it as a way of making us do something new, then it wasn't a waste at all. It was just a funny way of getting to a different place. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel that maybe people hold on to certain things a little too preciously at times and do need to move on? Yes. Um, and the converse problem of that, actually, is that um, people lose faith in what they're good at because it's easy for them. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check us out at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time...